Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. As always, a reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the board of supervisors for Santa Cruz County. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Maryland Senate President Bill Ferguson, who's leading from the front lines on so many urgent challenges at once. We talked about how the vaccine rollout is going in his state and why we should be optimistic, as well as how Maryland was able to recently pass a $1 billion COVID relief package with overwhelming bipartisan support. We also talked about the accidental meeting that made him pursue a career in teaching, which in turn led him to seek elected office to make a difference in education. Find out why he's glad he didn't know then what he knows now when he first ran and how he finally got to pass on the baby senator trophy. Well, Bill Ferguson, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you so much. Uh, It is such a pleasure to be here today with you. It's great to have you. I'm really excited to talk to you. There is so much going on in Maryland. So I just kind of want to dive right in, starting with, of course, COVID, which we're dealing with, obviously, as a whole country. As Maryland Senate president, in January, you announced the formation of a vaccine oversight committee. And I'm just wondering how are the vaccines going and what's been the work of the oversight committee so far? So we were in this unique position where the Senate has confirmation authority over the secretary level positions. And so our prior health secretary resigned at the beginning of December 2020, and the governor appointed a new health secretary that coincided with the authorization of the initial vaccines. And so this oversight work group traditionally wouldn't necessarily be something that we would do in the midst of session, but since the Senate was going to be in a place of having to confirm a new health secretary as this vaccine rollout was happening, and knowing that there is nothing more important than getting vaccines into arms to get past this pandemic, it felt like an opportunity to, to you know, be very hands-on in the oversight of what is the most important program in state government. So, We launched this as part of the confirmation process. We meet every week, Mondays at four o'clock, to review the data of what happened the week before and what's expected to happen the week ahead. Look, this is really hard. It is an enormous logistics challenge on every front. And so I'm sympathetic to to the pressures in the system. There are places where I think maybe I would have made different decisions in the administration. They went with a very decentralized approach to vaccine distribution for with hospitals, health departments, retail pharmacies. And in a state like Maryland, that makes a lot of sense when you have a good level of supply. The challenge is when we're in this early phase where supply is limited and you have a smaller eligibility for those who are the most vulnerable, I think a centralized process would have been kind of the most successful. And I think that's what you saw in places like West Virginia and Alaska, places that had a centralized National Guard managed program really were able to be more efficient. We're seeing some shifts. We've opened up some mass vaccination sites, which I think is a positive thing. But again, of course, underlying it all is that supply is the biggest problem. Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, maybe this um, 
this goes into my next question just about the the change in the administration, wondering how that has affected you. Obviously, it's probably very different working with the Biden-Harris administration than it was as Senate president working with the Trump administration. Have you, you know, have you, have you seen changes so far and what are you hopeful about? You know, I would say I've had more conversations with the Biden-Harris administration in six weeks by an exponential amount than I did in the prior four years, but particularly in the last year of the pandemic. It's just there is a level of, and I, and I genuinely don't mean this in a political way, there's just a level of seriousness and, and planning that is being brought to the work. The problem is not unknown. Supply is going to be the core issue and is the federal government is the key supplier for all states. You know, there there is just a, a scarcity challenge, but I do think there is a very serious recognition of the choke points in the system, and we're seeing rapid changes to try and address that. So I, I have a lot more hope that there is, uh, th- there is you know, a, a clearer level of coordination happening and an, a recognition that states are in very different positions depending on their size, geography, racial makeup. And so I feel more confident uh, with the current administration in charge. Well, that's good. That's good news. Good to hear that, that some things are moving in the right direction. I want to stay on COVID for a minute. You guys uh, in Maryland just passed or so the governor actually signed a $1 billion relief package. Uh, and I noted that at the signing ceremony, you said that you it took three weeks to get it through both houses with nearly unanimous support. And I just was struck by what a contrast that is of some of the gridlock we've seen in Washington, D.C. at the federal level. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what's in that bill, but also, you know, what we can learn from you about how you you all came together to get that done. I've been saying for a while and still believe that the most important thing that we could do this session was provide resources for the most vulnerable Marylanders who've had a disparate impact because of this pandemic to help them to hold on for the months ahead until the vaccine is widely distributed. If we did not do that, if we did not move forward in that direction, the long tail of this pandemic, even after the health emergency had subsided, would be dramatic. And so this was the most important piece of work that we we could have done. But it really resulted back in March of 2020, when we ended up having to cut our session short for the first time since the Civil War, the work just didn't stop. This, this interim was unyielding because of the challenges and complexity of the challenges that were that were being faced at the education level and the economics and just families and, and how they were dealing with this very abnormal environment. You know, the work really was a product of the nine months leading into session of identifying those who were disproportionately and disparately impacted by the pandemic, which unfortunately was very much so the case here in Maryland that we saw a strong correlation of disparate impact based on race. That was confirmed, I think, by the CDC recently showing that life expectancy across the United States declined over the last year. But particularly in black and brown communities, there was an exponentially greater decline in life expectancy, which is a surreal thing to say, but is the factual reality. And so while we were working through the interim, I approached uh, probably in the Thanksgiving time area, approached the governor, who is a Republican, and we have a supermajority General Assembly uh, in both chambers and said, you know, I think we all agree that we know what the biggest challenge is, and it would be great to find a vehicle and way that we can unite because we don't know what's going to happen in the federal level. And at that time, we weren't sure what was going to happen with the presidential election and all of the uncertainty there. And so that's when the conversation started. Uh, and by the time we got into session, it wasn't fully hashed out. But I think we all knew that this was the most important thing for us to get done. And it was some intense negotiations and, and a lot of work, but probably the fastest we've passed a bill 
certainly of that magnitude, uh, I would imagine, in the history of Maryland, but um, it, it's because it was needed. And hopefully checks are going out starting today and other supports will start to, to be in place starting next week. That's amazing. Well, some huge congratulations to you on that. I'd love to stick with the what you raised, this kind of disparity that we've seen through COVID. So unsettling and upsetting, of course, and obviously not just in the healthcare realm, right? We've, we've One of the things COVID has done uh, is really highlight these longstanding racial inequities in so many areas. And I noted that back in August, I think another advisory work group you put together as the state Senate president was on equity and inclusion. That group announced some recommendations in January. So, you know, kind of what was your thinking behind putting that group together? And can you give us a little bit of a sense of some of those recommendations? Certainly. And I'd say, you know, issues of race and equity and justice Something that are representing Baltimore City, this has been a topic of conversation for many years, but acutely since that sort of in our post-Freddie Gray in 2015, the unrest that, that Baltimore experienced. So the these are not necessarily new issues to be addressed. What I will say is that I think what the pandemic has done is expose in, in truly dramatic ways the fundamental breakdowns in our system that existed prior to the pandemic. So it it has not been a, the pandemic in and of itself is not inequitable. It has just exacerbated the inequities that existed previously. And so while we had our uh, our judicial proceedings committee working on kind of the, the criminal justice and policing reform body of work, so many of our in, uh, systemic inequities are built into our other areas and other sectors of, of the public sector and, and the private sector. So we launched this work group on equity and inclusion led by my amazing president pro tem, Melanie Griffith, who represents Prince George's County, but she is just a, an incredible partner. And I asked with her advice and help that we focus on three different areas, uh, health disparities, environmental justice, and the creation of intergenerational wealth and wanted to hopefully have a series of recommendations of things that we could move forward this year, knowing that all of these are very complex and hard and have been built over decades, that we could, one, measure the problem, know with data and evidence exactly what the problem was that we were trying to solve in each of these areas, and then ways to test solutions to make sure that we know whether or not the public policy solutions that we put in place are having the impact that we intend. And so they spent five months, really, it was a bipartisan group, had very hard and difficult conversations that I think were incredibly productive. They put together this report with 47 recommendations that I think will we will pass a series of bills incorporating a number of these pieces. But this was kind of the launching pad of what I, I hope and intend to be a broader platform that is a comprehensive look at our systems to see the everyday places where we build in inhibiting factors. And so, you know, little stuff like permitting of power plants and power generation and how it disproportionately is often in close proximity to lower income communities who are more often than not, the homeowners are black and brown, but our permitting processes look at the power side, the energy side, they don't look at the impact and the emission side of the communities that are in close proximity. You know, that's a system in government that can perpetuate these these inequities. And so we have to be willing to, I don't think there's one big solution that will pass one big bill. We have to be very thoughtful over time to really create a scenario where, where people have kind of the honest ability to maximize their potential. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so glad you're doing that. And I'm so excited to read the report. And uh, I think that really that can serve as a model around the country. But you're absolutely right. This has to be across so many different systems, education, broadband, I mean, there's just, you know, childcare, you name it, we know that the there's been disparities. So thank you for your for your work on that, for sure. I'd, I'd love to turn to education policy. I know this is an issue that's super close to your heart personally, and I want to come back in a, in a little bit to your personal journey into public service, of which education played a, a big role, I know. But I want to talk about the, the law that you all just passed, the Blueprint for Maryland's Future, and which implements the recommendations, I believe, of a multi-year effort called the Kerwin Commission, if I'm saying that right, which that's you were it, part of. Um, and I believe it creates a new, more equitable school funding formula to ensure high-quality education for for every child in Maryland, regardless of race, income, or zip code. Huge work, many, many years, as I said. Uh, interestingly, another area, and there's been others in your state where you had to override a governor's veto on this to get it passed and into law. But, you know, big win for you. So can you tell us a little bit about this legislation and, and why it's so important? Sure. So, I, you know, it really all started with our education funding formula, which is a really wonky thing to say, but is the, is the reality because at the end of the day, budgets are values, and so where you put your money and how you how you allocate it, I think, shows the values of any society, organization, or institution. And so, in Maryland, we passed a reauthorization of our education funding formula back in 2002. I ran for office because of huge frustrations with our public education system, and so we were supposed to evaluate that formula in 2012. And I was elected back in 2010 and, and sworn in in 2011. Well because we were still emerging from the Great Recession, was kicked to 2016. This was something where we were sort of working on pieces of the education funding formula, looking at early childhood and trying to expand here and there, putting more resources in for at-risk students. But in 2016, we had this chance to take a comprehensive look. Are we achieving what we hope to achieve? And Maryland is blessed to have, we're a very wealthy state. We do have a lot of wonderful educational options. The challenge is they are not equally or equitably distributed. And we have huge huge academic gaps that are not sustainable for the long-term productivity of our state. So we launched this Kerwin Commission to look, one, at the formula, but I think more importantly and, and most importantly was to look at the formula in the context of where our gaps were both internationally and to states that were outperforming Maryland. And that was on a policy basis. So we looked at the formula and the policies underlying uh, kind of uh, being built from that formula to see where the, the intersection of money and policy could really transform over a decade educational outcomes. We brought in the Center for Economic Progress. They had done international work looking at the building blocks of the most successful countries and their public education systems, and then did this gap analysis. What does Maryland do? What do they do? So it was a very intense process that went over three years. And the end result was a formula that came with certain policy objectives sort of in five core areas. One is investing earlier so that kids can be successful at their time of learning. Two was to make sure that we treat teachers like professionals and invest in them in, in a way that gives them a real career ladder and opportunity to maximize their professional trajectory. Three, to invest in students who need more with more. Uh, that sounds pretty basic, but unfortunately in Maryland, through this process, it became abundantly clear that we had an inequitable formula, despite some positive actions, the, the, our poorest districts, uh, and I represent one of them in Baltimore City, often were the least well-funded, despite progress. Then four was really the impact of the economy on our education system. The world has changed. 
but our educational pathways have not. So this fourth pillar was focused on the, the career technology opportunities in secondary schools and ensuring that there were no dead ends. So you end with a, a high school diploma means more than just a diploma, that there are industry-recognized credentials and that our secondary options were really aligned with economic success post-graduation. And then finally, fifth, and this is incredibly important, the accountability within the system to get the results. And so all of these five things ended up with a large investment over the next 12 years. And so the fight ended up being about, are we funding education too much or to the detriment of other things? And does money really lead to better results? That was really a distraction from what I think was the fundamental issue, which is if we really truly believe that every child should have the opportunity to maximize his or her potential, we have to have a system that demonstrates that. We know objectively with facts that the current system does not. And so we have to change if we really believe that. Uh, and so that was the value-based debate that we had. And I'm, I'm pleased that we were able to override the, the veto. And now we have to implement it with fidelity. Can I ask you this question? I'm just curious, were, were there any changes or areas that became more important kind of seeing the disparities through the COVID lens? I know this was started, this process started well before COVID, but was there any, anything that uh, was impacted by what we, what we learned through COVID? Certainly. When we passed the bill initially, it was right as we were leaving session, right at the end in this emergency shutdown. Then COVID hit us in full swing. The governor vetoed the bill. And so it wasn't implemented through this year. My argument, what I deeply believe is that we need this 10-year plan and, and roll out more today than we've ever needed. We had these gaps before the pandemic. Virtual learning and remote learning, despite Herculean efforts and creativity, has just, uh, there are kids being left radically behind. That existed before we passed this, this plan and has just been exacerbated. So some of the things that we learned is one, we'd already been working towards a community school rollout for uh, schools with concentrated poverty. We have decided to expedite that because we've seen that schools with strong community partners have been the most successful at retaining kids in this virtual environment and bringing resources that are not necessarily related to academics into the academic sphere so that kids get the support they need to be able to, to be ready to learn. Uh, the other thing is, of course, just the digital divide. I think that has just been an obvious area of challenge on the hardware and broadband side, but also on the technological literacy of families and communities. And so we are, we are adjusting some of the implementation of our plan to really think more creatively and aggressively about digital literacy and access. We'll have another follow-up bill this year that, that incorporates these two key takeaways to try and expedite. The one last thing I would say is we are putting some significantly more money in an emergency way into emotional health. I am very, very, very concerned about the social and emotional development of kids through this. And I have a third grader and first grader who have every support in the world and have really struggled through this. And there are families with very little means who have been so creative in trying to make it work. But there are so many kids who I'm worried on the backside of this are really not been able to process this experience well. And yeah. we've got to, to get them in a better place moving forward. 
Yeah, well, I, I can't thank you for that work enough because I, as a mother of two teenagers, I hear you and uh, we're in the same boat about this being just a terrible time um, for them. And they're, you know, they just, it's it's really hard. As, as you said, a lot really of Herculean hard. efforts going in and I understand that, but it's really hard for so. Um, th- so thank you for that. I'd love to just ask one final policy question. Uh, you've been in the news a lot this week uh, when you're thinking about funding some of this reform you were just talking about. You've been the primary champion of a bill that passed last week that would, it made you the first state in the nation to tax digital ads. And I know that over the last 24 hours, there's been some talk about tech companies um, suing around that issue. So can you just to kind of explain a little bit about what the bill does and, and how you're thinking that it may play out? As we were looking at how to fund public education and this investment, one of the key takeaways and feelings that I've had is that we have seen this massive change in our economy from what used to be a manufacturing-based economy and agriculture-based to what is now much more a service and knowledge-based economy. Our taxation systems have not kept up. And so as we were looking for revenue streams for how we could reliably fund these investments in public education, you know, the, the area of the digital world, I think, has been of key focus. And so we did our first sort of step was in the post-Wayfair environment, the out-of-state sellers. Uh, we had allocated money from out-of-state sellers in the, in the post-Wayfair case from the Supreme Court towards the blueprint implementation. Over this past year in the pandemic, uh, we were expecting maybe 80 to $90 million from our out-of-state seller program. In this pandemic, over the last six months, that 80 million turned into 474 million. Um, It is proof that we had been not capturing so many resources from, from the changed economy. So then you look at some of the fastest growing and largest companies in the country that have earnings above I just saw that one of them had 97% above earnings expected in the last quarter. For the most part, a lot of these large platform companies, these social media companies, pay $0 into states to help to help retain and build their, their state civic infrastructure. So we came up with this idea of this digital advertising tax, where you know the nexus to the state is the advertisement being served up in the state on a device, be it a computer or a mobile or a Siri or a some other digital device, and that that was the nexus to the state, that as those companies avail themselves to the privileges of a state by advertising in the state, they should also contribute to the long-term success, particularly when it comes to public education. And so we passed this digital advertising services tax that applies to companies that make over $100 million a year in digital advertising and make at least a million dollars in Maryland for Maryland advertising revenue. It has a progressive amount. So it goes from 2.5% on the gross receipts tax. So 2.5% to 10% if a company makes over $15 billion a year. So, you know, I just think fundamentally, I'm glad that we've seen these innovative companies grow. That is a beauty of American capitalism. We've seen the growth of, of new ideas. But the deal is everybody has to pay their fair share. The reason they can grow in a place like the United States is because states and cities and localities have made investments in their public systems to have a populace that can consume the goods that are being delivered. We have to, in this new economy, find ways to ensure that all companies, all entities who are benefiting, availing themselves of the privileges of public investments are contributing to that public system. Certainly, you can imagine there are companies that disagree with this perspective, but at the end of the day, I think this is a, you know, this is really a question that we're going to have to grapple with in this, in this technologically advancing society that we're in that you know, who has to pay their fair share? I think this is the right mechanism. A number of companies and their associations have now filed a lawsuit 
to block the implementation of this uh, of this new revenue measure. I think it's because they recognize that there are a lot of states similarly situated to Maryland thinking we can't have free riders in our system. Everybody's got to participate. Everybody's got to pay their fair share. So we'll see how it plays out, but um, it should be an interesting one. Certainly all eyes will be on Maryland to see how it does play out. I'd love to turn to a little bit, as you know, an honorable profession is really about uh, the importance of public service. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your own journey into elected office. Uh, I think you went to college actually as an econ major, if I if I read that right. But upon graduation, you joined Teach for America, as you noted earlier, becoming a, a classroom teacher in inner city Baltimore. So just before, you know, just getting started off in your career, kind of what happened in college that made you uh, to, to turn to a different uh, path than you thought you might be on? Yeah, I thought I was going to be in the finance world. Uh, that was kind of the path that I, and I wasn't really sure why, but I mistakenly, and it is truly kind of a mistake that went into a professional development session for Teach for America and knew the alumni who was presenting and thought, I'll, you know, I'll just sit through this and get the credit that I needed to get for this program that I was in. And just, I sat there as she was talking about the achievement gap, this, you know, this idea that just because the zip code in which somebody's born, it can be the biggest and, and most important life determinant. And I thought to myself, as somebody that cared about, you know, the idea of capitalism is markets align and supply meets demand and you clear the market. But all of that doesn't work if you know that not everybody has access to perfect information. And if we have an achievement gap, then our entire system is sort of built on this faulty premise, this faulty assumption of perfect information. And I just couldn't get this out of my head. And so it was this experience that really made me feel like I needed to kind of question what I thought and um, and made me apply to Teach for America. And I was so blessed to be placed in Baltimore City. And it was that experience that just radically changed my life and, and made me kind of realize that everything I sort of thought I knew about the world probably needed some more information and reality check. And so that changed what I care about, what I believed in, where I wanted to spend my, my time and energy and, and where I thought I could have the biggest impact in trying to create a, a, a better education system here in Maryland to really truly and honestly expand opportunity. Yeah. And when you were teaching, um, I think you were pretty vocal about what you were seeing and some of the concerns you had. I read a story about a, about a doorknob and having to carry a knife to, for, to be yeah, able to scissors. get in and out. Scissors. Yeah. Okay. Scissors. Is that right? Is that a true story? Yeah, this was, I mean, I, look, I grew up about 33 miles away from where I taught. So I was in sort of Southwest Baltimore and I taught ninth, 10th and 11th graders. And, the, and I think it's illustrious. I mean, so many teachers deal with so many more challenges. And but when I was teaching, I was given a classroom that didn't have a doorknob. And so I spent a year not being able to get a doorknob, but having to carry around scissors in my pocket to like break in and out of my room. Anytime that a student wanted to come in or out, or I got there at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. And to me, it was just a sim- symbol of like, I grew up 33 miles away. We're one of the richest states and the richest country in the world. And the building in which I'm trying to teach students the expectation is just figure it out, carry around scissors. We, you know, we don't have the resources to provide that. And it just, it just, that it, it just blew my mind that this could be the way that we allowed society to continue. And so I just feel like we're better than that. And, you know, I'm proud to say that in the last 10 years, we've been, I was able to about, what was it, two years ago, we were able to cut the ribbon on two brand new school buildings in the community in which I taught where we hadn't seen investments in new school construction in decades. And we were able in one summer to open two brand new 21st century buildings in the same year. It's probably the proudest moment I've had as an elected official. And the buildings aren't enough, but I think they really demonstrate 
you know, if we really care about kids, we've got to, we've got to provide them places and spaces that show that we care and that have high expectations about their potential. And so, you know, it's, to me, it is something I, I just deeply am thankful to have been able to be a part of and is, you know, sort of proof that we can solve big problems. We won't do it tomorrow. We won't do it overnight, but, you know, a consistent collaborative effort to change the world is possible. Yeah. And, and you probably, what you just shared with us probably answers my, my question about, about running for public office, but you know, what was it you, you know, in, in 2010, as you said, I think you were 27 at the time, decided to, to take on a democratic incumbent, long-term democratic incumbent to run for office. Was it the vision of what you just described to us about what could be done that, that propelled you to, to run for public, public office? Yeah, you know, the, the, the honest answer here is I didn't know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> I, I knew something had to be better. And I ran against a longtime incumbent, which at the time I didn't really realize was not the appropriate thing to do. And I just felt like something had to give and that if you want to make a difference, you can start a program, which is wonderful. But if you really want to change things, you have to change the law. And the law is the reflection of us as a people. And so that was the, you know, I I'd, I'd worked in some political areas and had worked with the council president's office at the time and had worked at the school system outside of the classroom, but with the, the superintendent and just saw how there was a mismatch, I felt, of priority. And so I just decided it was a time in life where I could take a risk. And I, we were, my wife and I were recently married and just decided to go for it. And I laugh about it now because if I knew then what I know now, it would have been a much, much, much harder decision. But I think it was that kind of like, well, things have got to get better that made it sort of a fall in and and do the best. I love that. What advice do you have for young people, a lot of whom listen to this podcast who are thinking about running for public office, besides don't really know what you're getting yourself into? Maybe that's actually the best advice you can give them. I don't know. (laughs) You know, and, and look, it's hard to give advice outside of one's own experience, but you know, I've come to find even in, in, while in office um, now at, for 11 years, it's focus on doing a really great job on wherever you are, because you never know how paths will, will play out. And if, if you're really focused on doing an excellent job at wherever you are, whatever you're doing, opportunities do arise. And so I think a lot of times people get really focused on what's the next step or where can I go next and what do I have to do to get to that? I think if you really focus in on, on really excelling where you are, that's that's the best way to help see opportunities come about. Yeah, I love it. Well, and I love your giving advice now with your, you know, wise, uh, after your, you know, with your wisdom, because I, I have to ask one last question about something I read, which is the baby shark trophy. So I understand that baby something, senator. baby, I'm mean, sorry, baby shark. Oh my gosh. Do, do, do it in my head. That showed us as our parenting there. Uh, no, the baby senator yes. trophy, which I, I, I understand you were finally able to pass on um, this I year. Over, I think it was six years to Senator Alfred. Uh, yeah, so I was the youngest ever elected in Maryland, and then for six years continued to be, but fortunately was able to hand it to my my dear friend and colleague, Senator Sarah Elfrith, who now retains the youngest senator award and gave her a trophy that hopefully will be handed down. So we are still at the bottom of the pack, though. It is her and I at the bottom of, of the, the age bracket. But, uh, you know, it's been an interesting experience all the way around. Well, I love it. Well, Thank you so much, uh, Bill, for joining us today and for all the work that you're doing in Maryland. You have your hands full, as you all do on the state and local front lines of um, so many kind of simultaneous 
crises, but also, as I like to say, I think a real opportunity, which you've shown us today to uh, rethink and rebuild America in a way that works better for everyone. So just thank you for your service. But thank you. And thank you to the New Deal. I just am so thankful. As I always tell you that it's like one of my favorite organizations because it's it's such an amazing place to, to deal with others who are really trying to tackle complex problems across the country. And it's it's the one organization that I'm always blocking off the calendar to make sure I can, can come to the annual summit because I feel like I've gotten some of my best ideas there. So just I'm so thankful for your initiation of it and its ongoing success. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>